You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with always typical Lydia today's show we're going to be doing the 1978 film Martin 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 I could listen all day to you wistfully say the name Martin I'll just pretend it's my name and I'll just follow (laughs) you up a staircase it's a good thing I have a staircase it's true we can reenact Martin over and over and over yeah you just like leaning suggestively over a banister I think that the Martin, Martin, Martin shit is the only thing I don't like about this movie. Really? Yeah. Hmm. It's just annoying. It's cloying. Yeah. It's the only, but it is the most memorable thing about this movie. Like the black and white segments? Yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Quite artful. And that's what you want out of a vampire movie, isn't it? Well, it certainly seems to be reflecting the vampire films of old. In the black and white sequences? Yeah. Very much so. And I find that a lot of the sensibility of this film is very european anyhow Mm -hmm. it really is he's done a good job transplanting a lot of the field of contemporary filmmaking at the time in europe to an american setting by an american filmmaker with american actors by and large and supplanting those little classic scenes which is sort of what people what comes to mind when you say old world nosferatu (laughs) <laughs> and it really is a case of the modern world intersecting with the old world, old ideas chafing with modern realities, mm-hmm. which is what Romero seems to be talking a lot about. Now, George Romero, for those of you who listen to this show and are, are probably horror fans, with exception to people who listen to this show because they know us and they feel obligated or they just want to tell me that they listen to the show and not sheepishly admit that they don't. Hi, Dad! (laughs) Hello. George Romero is a guy that pretty much needs no introduction in the horror circles. I mean, you're talking about a dude that is responsible for the fabled Dead series, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Land of the Dead, Survival of the Dead, etc., etc., etc. Also a dude that is responsible for other such films as Monkey Shines and Bruiser and... Martin. And Creepshow. Creepshow, yeah, he's on there. And Crazies. Oh, yeah, Crazies. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Some 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 of the things that you really appreciate him for, but sort of tend to forget because Night of the Living Dead totally overshadows all of that. Mm-hmm. And his small scandal of having it not copywritten properly, mm-hmm. or however you want to translate the, the gist of that story, mm-hmm. and the fact that he did lose copyright control over the original. Mm-hmm. It really is not only... A story about a guy doing anything he possibly can to get a movie made, him and uh, the production company at the time, but also a warning to new filmmakers about being very careful about signing away the rights to your first baby because he is in the unfortunate position of A, not seeing a dime for the first night film, although... Yes, he's done well for himself in the horror scene, but I mean, he'd be doing a hell of a lot better if he had some of those fat stacks of Night of the Living Dead money. I mean, the merchandising alone on those things. And then also you have so many DVDs and Blu-rays out in the wild that are just released. I mean, those 
horrible 30, 40, 100 pack horror movie things that just have crappy transfers of Night of the Living Dead on it just because. Yeah. Yeah. I think I have four copies of it floating around here. I definitely have multiple copies. I have the 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 red boxed a uh, night of living dead that was like approved by romero that's the version the official f- version of the film that i will watch on a regular basis uh because i mean i'm not that much of an original people ask me some of my favorite horror movies night of the living dead is obviously fucking on that i never claim to be a fucking original guy <laughs> <laughs> this is a super original movie though from this guy and he has definitely did everything correctly because there's no weird copyright problems with this. Mm-hmm. And it's a, a bit of the same um, sort of feel, though, as far as Gorilla and Maverick filmmaking, mm-hmm. using a very tight cast, uh, using what's at hand and shooting in the location that you happen to be in mm-hmm. and just making everything work. Mm-hmm. One of the first things that people will notice when they watch Martin is there's very few scenes on sticks. The types of scenes that are shot on sticks are either the black and white sequences, but there's a lot of fucking Dutch tilts in that. Yeah. And one major sequence towards the end of the film that's fucking shot like a Hammer movie with all the fog and and shit, which is purposefully shot that way. That's all on sticks. Everything else is fucking shoulders. Or uh, one scene even looks like a body rig to me there's a few of those scenes too yeah definitely um very rarely do they swap out lenses too i think mm-hmm. they're using something like a 28 or a, a mild fisheye mm-hmm. or zooming in on a on a classic fisheye lens for one or two scenes but other than that it's really straight shot and yeah shoulder mount it seems to be anyway mm-hmm. but that's how you're going to work in these tight spaces there's a few scenes uh, especially when he ends up at kuda's house for the first time where I really think you can see sort of the filmmaking where he's wishing for a little more room. And I encounter this a lot in photography in tight spaces. You just wish you could take four or five steps back, but mm-hmm. there's a wall there, so you can't. Um, and he's compensating for that here and there. But otherwise, it's unnoticeable that he's mm-hmm. shooting in these such tight confines and in places that are at hand. Everyone appears to be an extra and he said something like there's 120 extras in this film, but I don't know if all of them are accounted for because this, the cast listing at the end of the film is quite short. Mm-hmm. I think everyone just happened to be in frame, happened to be in frame. Mm-hmm. I swear there's a biker that pulls up and says hi to Martin and one scene. I don't think that was scripted. And I don't think that guy knew he was in a movie. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> and honestly, given the fact that this is a, a film that horror fans seem to know a bit about but the general populace seems to have long forgotten this film shot in 1976 didn't get released until 1978 but something else happened in 1978 in regards to romero's career that overshadowed everything because dawn of the dead happened and that became the message movie especially for a lot of romero fans i mean yeah night of living dead definitely has his followers and i'm one of them but I mean, you would be forgiven to have missed Martin when you were focusing on some of his bigger pictures. Because this is the message movie for vampires, which is be careful out there. (laughs) Yeah. Is Martin a vampire? Is he a vampire? I love that question. It's a great... I, you know, have absolutely no doubt in my mind that Martin is indeed a vampire. He is indeed a vampire. He is exactly what a vampire actually truly is. If they were to exist, because they don't. But let's say they do. Mm -hmm. He is what 
would have persisted, I really think, if there was someone with an affliction of vampirism. Romero himself is a filmmaker that, by the way, um, if you guys are very uh, ever interested, there's a fascinating book that exists, and it's called Dark Directions, Romero, Craven, Carpenter, and the Modern Horror Film. Written by a cat named Kendall R. Phillips. It's one of the headier horror books out there. I love heady. <laughs> it, it, it talks about what each one of these directors who are not celebrated in the mainstream of auteur directors, what makes them auteur directors and therefore what is the theme throughout all of their films that is unmistakably their mark. Philip suggests the unrestrained body is what Romero has consistently put into his films. The idea of normalcies put into us by society, religion, tradition, government, fighting with our natural animalistic tendencies, either in very demonstrable ways like the undead, consuming flesh, killing people, lawlessness. Same thing in the crazies. People, the Trixie virus, I, I think that is what it was referred to as. Um peeling away people's inhibitions and making them fall back on violent tendencies, sexual tendencies, a general sense of joie de vivre, because then all the crazies were violent. Martin specifically deals with the idea of the mythic body, another form of the unrestrained body. The idea of old world versus new world ideas about what these unrestrained bodies of vampires could be in the modern world. It's quite interesting read. And that's nothing to say about everything that he also talks about with uh, Craven and Carpenter. So I highly recommend this book to anyone that's interested in this type of thing. Yeah, it sounds like I was just going to put a tweet out the other day looking for um, a new book to read because I had gotten my public lending rights money and I usually spend that on, on books. <laughs> And I'm like, well, I've read a lot of like film theory books and there's a lot of film theory books that really don't relate to me that mm -hmm. I have no interest in picking up mm -hmm. or I could go to the library and get them, but things that I want to own. And that sounds like the next thing I want to own for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite things about Martin is that um, people continuously are trying to blame, blame these freedoms that he's garnered due to his vampirism and his advanced age uh, on craziness, mm -hmm. the vampirism itself. The fact that it is like could be warded off with garlic and crosses and things like that, um, that he's like a terrifying, menacing thing in the, in the night. And every single one he explains away with like, I've seen a lot of doctors. I'm not crazy. I'm 84 years old. Mm -hmm. um, it's not magic. It's just a costume. He's constantly saying things like that, mm -hmm. uh, which I really love. So he's really kind of putting it in everyone's faces. That you could turn around and say, well, he's probably not a vampire. Mm -hmm. This is so sad. But he knows he is a vampire. And what you think doesn't matter because it's just a costume. It's not magic. He's 84. Shrug. We can break things down to the base level. What is Martin doing? What is he truly doing? He is finding people, drugging them, drinking their blood, and leaving them for dead. Yeah, whether they make it or not is not any of his concern. Yes. So, and he also claims to have been born in 1892, I think. 
Yeah. So he would ostensibly be immortal. He is consuming people's blood for essence, at the very least. He gets the shakes. He doesn't have to do it every day, but he does have to do it somewhat consistently. Mm-hmm. So he's doing everything that we understand as vampirism. He seems frozen at 18 years old mm-hmm. or so. Yeah. 18, early 20s, whichever. And the only thing that he's not adhering to is the things that the modern audience would only be familiar from. He has a reflection. He's not afraid of crosses. Mm -hmm. He can deal with water, garlic, reflections, all of those things. Mm -hmm. So without all the stuff that we know from movies and Bram Stoker, etc., he is a vampire. He's just not a pop culture vampire. Unless you sit there in this film and agree with the character Christine, played by Romero's wife, which is kind of cool at the time. Christine Forrest was her name. Um, Cousin Christina, I guess, is her Mm -hmm. actual character name, who really does not swallow any of this Mm -hmm. and thinks that everyone in the family telling him he's a vampire for so many years has driven him a little nuts Mm -hmm. that he actually believes it. And she thinks it's just so sad. So you can sit on one side and watch this movie from that perspective. And it's a wonderful, sad film. It's still a wonderful, sad film if you believe he's a vampire. Like mm-hmm. I and I think it can go both ways. I don't think him being him being a vampire or not being a vampire, I think, doesn't really matter. Maybe it's a little sadder if he's not a vampire because it, it becomes a matter of a person with a mental illness whose delusions have been fed through his own family and then is ultimately destroyed by his own family. It's sort of the sort of vampire that people think that I would be if I were a vampire. I mean, yeah, I I suppose if you were a vampire, I would view you as more of a crushed velvet vampire. But I'm not, though. I don't even own any velvet. I think you would, though. I think if you became a vampire, you would wake up with the pale skin, paler than normal, perhaps more gray-toned, and you'd have fangs, and then your entire closet, nothing but velvet. It would just manifest itself. I realized the other day that I'm wearing a particular shade of foundation that is still too dark and it's the lightest shade that this particular company makes. And it's like, fuck my life, really. But that's the thing. You don't become a vampire. That's the thing I love about Martin is that he, when when he dresses like a vampire, it's a fucking joke to him. He has plastic teeth in fuck's sakes. And telling the guy, it's a costume. And that's what I love and how this fits into the last three films that we've done. This is the end of our vampire extravaganza, as Mm -hmm. it were. Palooza. Yeah. It's made me want to watch two more films, though, which aren't going to be on the show. But that's the impetus for all of this was the popularization, actually three films, of not vampire vampire films that I really enjoy. Uh, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, Mm -hmm. more popular, fresh one that I think a lot of people didn't really understand. And I really enjoyed it very deeply. And let the right one in. Uh, I haven't got through the remake because I don't know if we, if we... I think we've had this conversation on the show where it's just like, I feel like I'm just watching the same movie over again. Same with Funny Games. It's like, well, why, why am I watching the same movie over again? It feels like a waste of time. But anyway. Um, and then Only Lovers Left Alive. Another wonderful, not very typical vampire film. That fits into this whole milieu of not vampire vampire films. Because I'd realized after writing Night Faced, I didn't read a lot of vampire fiction or watch a lot of vampire movies. The only ones I could really sink my teeth into <laughs> uh, 
were the non-vampire vampire movies. Not, and not non-vampire meaning there's no vampires in them, but not your typical hammer horror vampires. Not your typical Coppola vampires. Not your typical Dracula. Mm-hmm. And I really, really love Martin for that because you're saying if I were a vampire, I would be the crushed velvet one drinking out of goblets or whatever the fuck. <laughs> but let's say I am a vampire. Yeah. Like Martin is a vampire. Mm-hmm. Do you picture him more running through the cobblestone streets being chased by villagers with torches and stuff? Is that the that's when he's a vampire? Or is he not a vampire working at this meat store with his uncle? And delivering to Lonely Housewives. I think that he is the vampire at the butcher shop selling things to Lonely Housewives. But I think that what he wants is to be the romantic crushed velvet vampire. I think his disdain and frustration with all of these myths and legends, why he feels the need to go on the radio to dispel things, to vent his own frustrations, is because he's not those things. Romero specifically depicts Martin as lanky and boyish, awkward, very uncoordinated. He's a virgin. He's a virgin. He is a person that is not smooth with the ladies. Not at all. He does not have a puffy pirate shirt billowing out his muscular chest, nipples percolating just ever so underneath the silken fabric i forgot to mention interview with a vampire yeah sorry that's what i was getting at with with all that shit yeah where they're just where they say here's an idea no one's ever thought of before that's a vampire vampire movie yeah as far as my my two uh diagrams here of non-vampire vampire movies and vampire vampire movies it's mm-hmm. so a vampire movie. It is the vampire movie of all vampire movies. Yeah, absolutely. You yeah. Take all the most handsome men in Hollywood at the time and put them all in one movie and it works. Who would have guessed? But, uh, and, and, and this is different from Christopher Lee, from Bill Lugosi, those types of vampire films, Interview with the Vampire, etc. Even though Interview with the Vampire, while uh, the book would have been out by 1976, yeah? Mm-hmm. But mm. but not the the movie. I think it's seventy two or something okay. like that. Okay, okay, yeah, first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Lestat might have even been out by this point, seventy six ish. If I have this all right in my head, because I'm not going to look it up. We're recording. We're recording now. We're yeah. not going to look it up. But but generally speaking, um, those books were in and around the seventies. And, and some of the films coming out too were a little more campy. This seems to be telling a story the way that Romero would want to tell a story. Still making a vampire film, but also still kind of doing it. His own way, his indie punk way. And very realistic. The only thing missing here is a shopping mall. Like, really. Yeah. There's grocery stores, there which is, is yeah. very everyday and very middle America. And it works very, very well. And filming just in and around Pittsburgh were very recognizable to a lot of people, I'm sure. Not me, because I've never been there. But mm-hmm. yeah, keeping it in home. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania. I'm surprised nobody says it like that in this film. Because <laughs> they make no bones about it being around Pittsburgh. Yeah. Yeah. They don't hide it as any town USA. They're very clear <laughs> where that train is going in the opening scene. Starring Martin Any Teen. <laughs> yeah, pretty much right. Any Teen is right. He gets better looking the more you look at him. I don't know. He's a foppish looking young guy with a crazy mouth. I don't know. <laughs> But he does look good running around a house with a syringe in his mouth. Which he does quite a bit. Now, Lydia, 
What's this fucking movie even about anyways, though? Like I said, if you're a vampire, it's what not to do and how to be careful. It's like the Dexter for vampires. You know, they. I. it's funny that you should say Dexter because there's a scene where he where they're just focusing on him cutting vegetables. I know, and, right? and it's like the whole opening sequence of Dexter as far as I was concerned. There's a lot of Dexter. It's a, it's a lot of like when Dexter was young, when they show in the show Dexter, how Dexter fucked up here and there and stuff mm-hmm. like that. How he learned to be as Dextery as he is. Dexterous, if, if you <laughs> I will. Gonna, I was going to say, but I'm glad you did it. I have to. I'm learning. I'm mm. learning how to be funny <laughs> or something. I'm learning anyway. But yeah, it does remind you a lot of Dexter. And I love the, that you noticed the chopping vegetables thing too. Something mm-hmm. that only would really equate to a Dexter fan or someone who's seen the opening sequence of mm-hmm. Dexter. Mm-hmm. And I think of Dexter every morning when I make coffee. I really do. <laughs> I hated the opening sequence of Dexter. I will have you. Know. I would bet that you would. Yes. That's a lot of food prep that's getting focused on. We're moving on, Lids. Don't worry. I just keep thinking of the other th- scene in Martin that fucking squicks me out so bad. What scene is that? She puts her foot on the phone. <laughs> I forgot all about that. And they show like a close-up of it. It's crazy. It's Multiple so- times. Yeah. She keeps doing it. It's the grossest thing that Romero has ever committed to film. Ever. Are you talking about the dude that makes movies where people eat each other, Lydia? Yeah. Like, really. You know, in Land of the Dead, they have that scene where someone's arm gets split apart like a fucking wishbone. Mm-hmm. I like that scene. It's, it's a good scene. Cool, yeah. It's a good scene. Yeah. <laughs> this foot thing, though, it's gotta go. It's gotta go. Of all the stuff that they cut from this, apparently this movie could have been like, I don't know, but twice as long. 165 fucking minutes uncut. Yeah. What? Listen, listen. At 90 minutes... There are some scenes in this film that putter to me. Like this foot thing. Yeah. Well, I mean. No, the foot thing actually doesn't break the pace. There's a few scenes, yeah, that do break the pace. And you could probably lose seven minutes. Oh, absolutely. Especially when you're thinking about, we haven't really been living up to our name lately with splatterpictures.net. We have uh, been doing a lot of sleepy horror films or non-horry horror films, etc. This is really no exception. Although the the scenes are quite good as they are. And by the way, if you want to talk about horror royalty, not only is this a Romero picture, this is the first time Romero's ever worked with Tom Savini. Yeah, you're supposed to say it like Tom Savini. Well, you said it that way for both of us. Got to throw some echo in around that. Tom Savini being the special effects makeup guru. We've mentioned a few times on the show already, if you guys aren't familiar with his work, I don't know why you're listening to this show. Hi, Lydia's dad and mom and... and my dad knows who Tom Savini is. Well, there you go. So, like, big time. My dad probably knew all about Tom Savini before I'd even heard the name. Really, quite honestly, just because people paid attention to things differently. Mm-hmm. We've covered a couple of his films already. We've done Maniac. We've Nightmare done City. Nightmare City. We've done Prowler. So there's a lot of uh, Savini work on our show already. Rightfully so. The dude does a really great job. And honestly, if you were confused about what decade this film came out in, wait no further than when you first see a splash of blood and you can instantly know exactly when this movie was made. That shade of red, unmistakably 70s. Very, very true. And it happens fairly quickly. Like we are, this isn't uh, a splatter picture, as it were, but... We do get some really decent, bloody vampire-style gore 
pretty early on in and quite a bit of it. There is a, no lack of blood. It's just not as theatrical as uh, a horror fan, a quote unquote fucking textbook horror fan would enjoy. But yeah, perfect example of 70s Savini. And not only do we get some Savini effect work, we get to see his lovely face because he has a role in this film. We do. Not entirely rare, but far more rare than his effects work is. He even does a stunt too. Not unlike doing a stunt in Maniac Mm -hmm. or like getting his head blown off. That's true. But he does uh, get thrown over a car basically, which is pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. So he was a man that wore many hats in this film. Mm -hmm. And because Sabini is working on it, like you said, we do get a lot of bloody vampire action. It's not as bloody as as a film that goes for the ridiculous in terms of blood and gore, like um, Innocent Blood or something like that. that I thought you were going to say a movie that goes for the throat. (laughs) And throw all those puns in there because that is the thing missing with the gore here is that Martin isn't a typical fanged vampire that is not on jugulars. He's a very subtle vampire. Mm-hmm. At that, and he favors hypodermic syringes and razor blades. In the opening scene, he's in a train car and he's feeding, and he's pinpointed his next victim and snuck into her cabin and drugs her and cuts her wrist so he can drink from it while they're naked, which is the strangest thing. I think that's about the strangest thing about Martin is why he needs so much skin-on-skin contact. Yeah, it does lend itself to the vampire eroticism that would have been especially familiar to people back in those days, but it's non-sexual. It seems like he doesn't want to really have sex with them. He seems to just want to be naked with her. Just be naked and close. He's incredibly lonely. They're just asleep at this point. They're not dead, so they're warm. So... He keeps putting the the sleeping girl's arm around him like she's holding him, which is just precious and mm. pathetic at the same time. The hypodermic needle that he uses to incapacitate his victims seems to be a fairly slow-acting device. It takes a few minutes for this shit to get through your system enough to make you easy to handle. She fights this dude off pretty well and even throws insults at him calling him pathetic and a rapist and and all this type of shit and he's just trying to say it don't it won't hurt you go to sleep he almost sounds like a serial killer when he's saying this type of stuff but he needs that for this person to become docile and then he takes out a razor blade and he slits the wrist and then he drinks from the bloody wound and that is him being a vampire when you would look at that you would say well that's not a vampire he's not he i well i mean it's a vampire with no powers. It's a vampire with no fangs. So it's a person that needs to apparently drink blood, but can't, has no physical means to just do that. No hypnotic stare. No. Yeah, it's not too long past the scene where he's telling everyone over and over, there's no such thing as magic. Mm-hmm. So there's, you take all the magic out of a vampire, all the powers, as it were, and the fact that they just need to drink blood and they'll live forever. That's all. That's all he's got. I, I, that's what I love so much about this film because that's handled very, very well. And he drives home over and over in many different ways that there's no such thing as magic. So this is what he's left with. And your mind already starts to grapple with like, well, what would my life be like if I had to live like that? And we get a really good image of that in Martin. Mm-hmm. He um, has fallen on hard times and has been ferried off to live with an uncle. Colonel Sanders. Basically, yeah. And he deals with meat and chickens, so... He does. I like when you had joked about 
first we tell you about the 11 herbs and spices. <laughs> Nosferatu. Nosferatu. Ridiculous, because that's the first thing. You know, you expect someone like, oh, well, I'm your uncle and I've had to take you in and I don't appreciate this, but you're going to work for me and that's how you're going to earn your keep around here and I want you to keep your hands off my granddaughter. Mm-hmm. Aside from all of that, it's like, I don't want you to kill anyone in the town. You're a Nosferatu and I'm going to keep my eye on you. You're not going to go in my room. There's garlic mm-hmm. everywhere. This guy, this Kuda, Tadakuda. Tadakuda. He's uh, old school. as old school comes. He's a... Uh, God-fearing Catholic man who adheres to this idea that Martin is indeed a vampire. He is indeed immortal. He has a damned soul that needs salvation. And if Martin is to uh, succumb to his vampiric urges, he will be destroyed. The is one lo- of the, first I will save your soul and then I will destroy you? Yeah. You wrote it down too? I wrote it down, yeah. Because he basically line. gives away the whole plot of the film. Mm-hmm. Although he doesn't really do a good job of saving Martin's soul. No. He actually tries to exorcise it. Mm -hmm. In the laziest exorcism I've ever seen in my entire life. Sleepy, one might say. Yeah, and that maybe is one of those scenes that you're talking about that sort of drags his feet a little. Yeah. Yeah. A scene where I find it less interesting. I found the scene with Romero himself as the preacher in a more casual conversation. I feel like that's more telling. Not only... Is Romero doing a cameo as a modern day priest, one that does not necessarily believe in demons and monsters of old, versus Tadakuda, who is asking directly if this person believes that the human body can be possessed by a devil, if it is possible to become damned by a demon, and also informing him that what people of this town like, this old town, with old values, they want a new preacher that thinks in the old ways. Meanwhile, every time that Tadakura demonstrates any of the old ways, they prove ineffectual against Martin. He can place the cross on his bare skin. The garlic does nothing to repel him. He tries to explain to his uncle over and over again, it's a sickness. Don't you understand? Yeah, it's not magic. Yeah. Of course none of that works. I like that he's very um, matter-of-fact about it, too. Because Cousin Christine doesn't really believe he's a vampire at all. Yeah, doesn't believe that he's uh, even drinking anyone's blood. No. Asks him point-blank how old he is. And he answers her point-blank with 84. Mm -hmm. Which is hilarious that she still, of course, doesn't believe him. And tries to carry on thinking that he's delusional. Mm Mm-hmm. Which she's really the one that's deluding herself. I, I like that angle of this film. And then you start to wonder how delusional is Kuda? Mm-hmm. You know, will he ever just believe that there's no way any god will save him? There's no salvation to be had whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Which strikes me as very odd because we get a small library scene in a way when Kuda pulls up the family photo album and showing how this has been passed down through generations. He's actually what? The actor himself that played Kuda, Lincoln Mazel, was born in 1903, making him only nine years younger than the fictional Martin uh-huh. in this scene, which makes Martin the vampire not seem that old anymore, because even if he was mortal, he'd still be kicking. Mm-hmm. Really? Because Yeah. But it's the lack of physical degradation over time, no aging process. I, I always dig vampires... 
in stories around that age. I find it very interesting when a vampire is old, but not... Not like 400 years uh, that's old. The, that's the thing. I was like, there's a disconnect when you're just like, I have been alive for thousands of years. I like, I'm, you lost me. I don't, I can't relate to that. Yeah. But because I can't even really imagine a world like that. But One I can, to 400 years he can swallow. Yeah. Yeah. So, but when, when a vampire is like, I'm 109 or something like that, this old, but not so crazy old. Then I then I kind of like oh yeah yeah I see that I see that and you would you what would the world be like? because like the huge amount of change in our world over the last hundred years that's crazy right so because I, I like I was like this person would have been alive before fucking houses had electricity and then all of a sudden we're flying with like the internet we have all this fucking shit now right yeah. Yeah, let alone motor cars and picture movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's all very interesting to me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the sort of thing that Martin would have seen come to light because he was chasing girls around with candles Mm -hmm. last time he was ousted from a village. Mm -hmm. And now he's able to just go up and grift them a little with uh, pretending that he's deaf mute and looking for (laughs) donations, which is crazy. It It seems to almost be... Not like he's asking permission to enter a place because he doesn't need permission to enter a place. But it almost seems he wants a little bit of face to face with his victims. He wants to be able to think about it for a little bit. He doesn't seem to want to randomly attack people until we learn later that when the shakes are just too bad, it will fall to anyone. Yeah, exactly. But he does seem to like to choose his victims, which is the most frilled cuffed vampire practice he seems to have. The specificity of who he's going after. That or it's just, you know, learning that if he doesn't take his time, he has a bigger chance of getting caught. That's what I always took it as. Mm -hmm. That he's doing these stalker things, these serial killer kind of motions so that he has a less chance of getting caught. He'll have more time with the body, especially if he's feeling lonely, not just thirsty. And he wants to spend time with these beings naked. Um And that's the thing that I like the most about him. And it's also the thing that I'm most unsettled by. Because if Martin wasn't a vampire, he would be a very effective and very terrifying serial killer and stalker. I think that the familiarity of his serial killer stalker practices is what can humanize him further. By this point, society was well aware of serial killers and who would operate in much the same way, the idea of someone breaking your house, drugging you, doing things to you, killing you, that was not alien to people anymore. It wasn't like this far-flung idea where, oh, I heard about that once. I mean, this was in the getting to the late 70s. I mean, it was all over the place. Some of the most notorious serial killers around had been brought to light at this point. Yeah, we're behaving this way that... The term had been popular yeah. for over eight years, I think, by mm-hmm. this point. I think it was 71 mm-hmm. when they started actually using the term serial killer. And, yeah, this was definitely things that were hitting the news. And forensics had gotten to a point where they were able and were more interested in looking for modus operandi. So they were looking for how people were drugged. They were looking for how they they had gained access and how they had kept the body quiet and how they had spent so much time with the body to do the horrible things they did. Mm-hmm. Something I never figured out about Jack the Ripper is how he spent so much time tearing apart a body 
with an open window and people walking by, didn't mm-hmm. she scream? Or were they so used to screams? That's the sort of stuff that was making the news as far as law, serial killers, and all the horrible, if it bleeds, it leads headlines. It's like, clunk, clunk, clunk. So if he wasn't a vampire, he would. this would be the most effective and terrifying fucking serial killer movie ever. And I'm sure there's people that have walked out of this thinking he's not a vampire at all because their mind just won't bend that way. And they're more on the side of the Christine of this film. And the same people who probably don't think Cronus is a vampire movie. Well, Christine in this film definitely represents the absolute other end of the spectrum from uh, Kuda, where she is a modern woman of 1978, 1976 when this film was filmed. She doesn't believe, she believes in... uh, the mind and reality and science and this person has a mental illness and you guys are feeding into this mental illness, but there's no way. Not only not only does magic not exist, but immortality is basically magic. So you're not immortal and you're not a vampire and you're not doing anything. And it's not only it's not only the fact that Kuda is convinced that Martin is a vampire and just venomously saying Nosferatu to him <laughs> at all times. Which is hilarious, especially when Christine even makes fun. She's like, the old ways, the old country, Nosferatu. Yeah, it really, it, it really becomes this question about Kuda is definitely trying to instill his old world authority on this subject. And you, none of you understand and all of you have forgotten. And Martin doesn't even really fully understand because look, this cross doesn't even work on him or something. I don't know what his logic is. He seems genuinely confused that the old methods of repelling vampires doesn't work on Martin. It's like a cranky Van Helsing. Yeah. Thinking like, I have all the secrets, so I'm the only one that can save us all. But oh shit, my secrets aren't working. Mm-hmm. Now I'm pissed. Right, and he doesn't ever offer any explanation about why he thinks these things don't work. And I'm not saying the ambiguity of Martin is one of its strengths, so I'm not saying that they need to do that to improve it. But if I were really to sit down with Romero at any point, one of the questions that I would like to ask him is, I don't need to definitively know whether Martin was a vampire in your mind or not, but what I would want to know is what is Kuda's logic to why the things don't work? If he's so convinced that Martin is a vampire, yet so unwilling to accept that while Martin is a vampire, he does not adhere to traditional vampire lore. Well, I guess it's a lot like the Malus Maleficarum and what the witch finders were doing. There's a lot of things that wouldn't work as far as trying to prove a witch is a witch. So they just try trial after trial after trial until finally... They're like, oh, if you prick her with a pin and she bleeds, she must be a witch. Which is ridiculous, because by the end of this, Kuda does have his comeuppance where, well, if you stake a vampire through the heart, what happens? Yeah. Well, he must be a vampire. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, or the same idea. Well, if you drown, you're, you're, you weren't a, a witch, but don't worry, you're saved. And if you don't drown, well, then you are a witch. And we'll we're have to right. burn you at the stake. We'll have to burn you at the stake. Yeah. Ridiculous. It is ridiculous thinking and that's what keeps Kuda going, I think, is that there's no one that can really prove these fallacies and and tell him that there's nothing he can do, that he has to allow this to persist in front of him and have it live in his house. There's nothing he can do. It is very funny, almost sitcom-y in certain, when they're all sitting down at the table and Kuda knows that this person is a vampire, yet seems to have, and has a Van Helsing-like hatred 
towards vampirism, but yet it's almost like a guess who's coming to dinner type <laughs> scenario where he has to sit there while his granddaughter sits there and just sort of joyously talks to this vampire. It's very sitcom-y. It's very like, it, it, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me that why Kuda would even have Martin in his home. Is it some sense of family obligation? Or is it that if Kuda, like if this exorcism would have worked, if the vampire, the demon in him that made him a vampire would have been released and he was suddenly just a 18-year-old nephew, would he welcome him with open arms and would there be tears and joy and would tomorrow be a new day and the church bells ring? Who knows, honestly. I like that he brings a vampire to church too. He does. Which, by the way, uh, Martin has no problem with. No. It's a very, very rundown church. Almost looks like they're fucking having it in a warehouse. Basically, and they're they're talking about raising funds to rebuild the church. So I don't know what happened in church, but... Something. I mean, it looks dilapidated. It's an interesting setting. It's a far more interesting setting than having to actually shoot in a church, which I guess they couldn't do. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's... Maverick filmmaking at its finest right there. I suppose they're like, "It's it's a church. It's a church, guys. Come on. We need to rebuild the church, obviously. Look at it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that does help if you say this is going to be our church. Well, it looks like shit. Just throw some lines in about how we need to rebuild the church and there you go. Yeah. Now we can shoot the church anywhere. Yeah. It opens you right up. Very fascinating masterclass in Maverick filmmaking. And he said several times this is his favorite film. And I think that that's a lot to do with it, not only because it's lightning in a bottle and it's written quite impeccably and it's acted very well. It's shot very well. There's a lot of things about Martin that are really, really great. But I think that he can look back on it and see, this is where I learned how to do this. This mm-hmm. is where I learned how to do that. That's where I learned to never do that again. And this is where I learned how to improve on that. And this is where I learned that I do this right naturally. So, And there's probably a lot of moments like that because I, I feel watching it that it comes from a very natural filmmaking point of view. Well, I'll tell you one thing about old Martin. is He's a vampire through and through, perhaps. But he's also a man. And it seems as though the second he has the attention of a, of a lady in a setup that I can only describe as porntastic. Oh, yeah. All of a sudden, his vampiric urges seem to subside, at least for a time, for sexy moments. Sexy time. The sexy times. Is that yeah. basically what he calls them? I know I wrote it down because it struck me as hilarious. Yeah. Sexy stuff, sexy times. Doing the sexy stuff. <laughs> Doing the sexy stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for an 84-year-old virgin, he really talks like a 14-year-old, not even like a 10-year-old. Yeah. The sexy stuff. Yeah. He can hardly wrap his head around the sexy stuff. Fuck, man. And he, I'm going to make it like he hasn't had his head wrapped around anything. <laughs> or anything wrapped around it. It takes him until the third time that the bored housewife, who's obviously hitting on him and spending a lot of time in her short shorts or underpants, straight mm-hmm. up fucking underpants, around this what appears to be an 18-year-old delivery boy. Mm-hmm. It takes him about three visits before he's like, you want to have sex with me, don't you? And I want to do that thing. It is time for us to make with the woo-wee. Yeah, I've never had sex before because I've never been good with that sort of thing, but I'd like to do it with you. Sexy. You know what? It works. Because... Of course it works. She would have fucking, oh my God. She. It was one more visit before she dragged him into the bathroom with her in the shower like or something. trap spider. Or whatever girls do. I don't know. I don't eat, I really get the sexy stuff. Very eat eat their heads and then copulate? Exactly. Exactly. That's what I've always done, envisioned. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> <laughs> well, 
Well, it's nice. They have a nice little uh, affair. Romance seems to be the good, the best that Martin's going to get. She's beautiful. She's nice, and it's uh, it's good. It's real good. Yeah, I like the the sex scene. It sort of lasts four seconds. We see two naked people, and then cut to crying lady on the couch and uh, toweling off Martin. Yeah. There's no, like, sex scene. It's just, like, naked people laying together. Yeah, it kind of looks like she fell asleep on top of him. We've all been there. We've all been there. Yeah, so but this is also the position Martin likes the very, very most. And you fear for her for that split second because that scene is really literally a split second. Uh, it's probably, like, like, a 14-second scene of her laying on him the way that his first victim mm. was laid across him. That we know that's how he likes to begin draining their blood. I did get kind of squicked out. When I was talking about getting squicked out by the feet, blah, um, when he goes with the razor blade with his first victim and he sort of like doesn't quite break the skin with the razor blade and he has to go in a second time, I definitely cringed a little there. I noticed that. Yeah. But the the foot scene, by the way, we skipped over one of my favorite sequences in this entire film, which is the cat and mouse game that's played. Yeah, this when, home invasion. Yeah, because of the fact that he went to someone's house, pretended to be a deaf mute, asking for money. Guy's husband was away, going away. He did pick up that much information. He was expecting this woman to be home alone, and when he broke in, oh snap, she's having an affair with a dude. Yes. And and he says, "Hey, no reason to go crazy." And then she screeches that she doesn't know him, and then Martin leaps on the guy, injects him with the syringe. But as we know, that. The, this dosage takes a while to even get going. And he also probably doled out just enough for this tiny lady, not this great big moose of a man mm-hmm. that starts chasing him around the house. Yeah. So now they're trying to call for help, but they can't agree on who to call because of the fact that if they call the police and that she's having an affair. So they're kind of trapped and they want to take matters into their own hand. But every time that she even tries to dial out, Martin's on the other line. And he's fucking with the phone. I don't know how hitting the buttons would stop a call from coming in. I guess when she's trying to dial, he's dialing extra numbers. Yeah, that's exactly how. Mm-hmm. That is exactly how. And it's brilliant, actually, at the time, because that's the technology they had at hand. Mm-hmm. And you had noted their confusion over what 911 was even really for. Yeah, yeah. Because it's relatively new. And they probably have never had to dial 911. And it's not like on TV all of the time, because mm-hmm. on films like Black Christmas, let's say, you pick up the phone and you call the police station. And people still do that in, in films nowadays. And in real life, you'd probably just call 911. Mm-hmm. 99% of the time, there's not a lot of chance that you're going to pick up the phone and dial the police station. Mm-hmm. But So they're very, very confused. But yeah, Martin's ruining it all with third extension that happens to be in the house in the games room because everyone had a games room. That is an interesting point. Even Abby's talking about the games room not being done. Mm-hmm. Games room. What, what do you, we had a uh, my grandparents' house had a games room. Oh, yeah. Did you it, play games in it? We did, as a matter of fact. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a it was a a carpeted place, r- short red carpet with little squares on it, and it just had a bunch of board games in there. Clue, Clue. Connect Four, yeah. Operation, sorry. We had those games in the front living room. Instead of a games room, we had a sunroom, I think. Yeah. I think that's what we had instead. Goofy's Darn Socks. What? That's a game? Yeah, Goofy's Darn Socks. You have a bunch of socks. And uh, if you there's moth pieces. And if the moths 
get holes in the socks and then you have to like fix the patches and so you're darning socks yeah i i, I, so I got the go- pen. Go- goofy's darn socks we had cat mansion it was it was a mansion full of cats and you had to get the cats around the board and i can't remember the object of the game but i do remember that there was a card called ignore all meows and if you had ignore all meows then i think you could move without worrying about the other cats it's pretty funny. No idea, but they really, really tried absolutely fucking anything for ten ninety nine in a Walmart to make you buy a goddamn board game, didn't they? <laughs> to be fair, Cat Mansion was was something that my grandmother had. So I don't know. I I looked it up on eBay recently because me and my brother were talking about it, um, and I'm thinking about buying myself a copy of uh, a game from good old this. Was, Cat Mansion was a game in the seventies, so you know maybe in the games room. In Barton, oh, maybe they had a copy of Cat Mansion in it. Maybe we should go back and see if they do run through the games room, if we can slow it down a little. Let's see if we can find Cat Mansion. It's a blue box. So if we can find a blue box that says Cat Mansion on it, we know that some of Martin's victims were ignoring all meows. Definitely. Definitely. I'm glad that Martin was ignoring all meows because the first thing he does in this cat and mouse game is get rid of the great big bull that's slowly fucking succumbing to these drugs he's being injected with mm-hmm. and traps him, tricks him into being trapped outside, which is great. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's it's funny that even though Martin is scared, he seems to still kind of have a plan he seems to know the lay of the land a little bit very cat-like you know he's very able to i mean sometimes he runs around like an awkward teenager one of the times when he was running away from his uh would-be mistress he runs into the fence and then just skips down the uh, the alleyway just looking as awkward as fucking like a baby deer that just learned to walk and then other Wes t- could barely stop laughing actually. it was it fucking was so funny but then other times he's like vaulting over couches and and mid walls and stuff like that where i was just like oh wow very athletic and if you see the black and white sequences he has a lot of practice in mm-hmm. fucking running from the townspeople with torches in their hands mm-hmm. and that's basically what this is it's instead of a torch it's a fucking phone wielding 911 <laughs> Right? Mm-hmm. So he's uh, really used to this. Really, really used to this. So he corners his new victim and shoots her up with the drugs and mm-hmm. then gets to have his way with her. But he says, like, you're going to wake up and be fine because mm-hmm. I have him. Yeah, he's going to he's gonna drink the big dude's blood, mm-hmm. which he does. Puts his shirt back on, nice of him. Drags him out to the forest and uh, has his way with him. Then tidies up his mess. Fucking picks up after himself. Picks up the candy dish. This house is fucking hideous. The one thing that I have to say about the 1970s, as much as I can sort of romanticize times in which I wasn't alive, looking at the aesthetic of the 1970s, I can honestly say that I don't think that I could handle it. It's so tacky. The entire house. And these look like affluent people. So this is an affluent person's house. And it looks... So gross and tacky to me. It's the walls. Everything's wallpapered and the crazy decor and all the shag carpeting. Every room looks like a puzzle piece to a different puzzle. Yeah. That they tried to hammer hammer the pieces together and make a house with. Yeah. My dad had some modern architecture magazines when I was a kid that he used to flip through all the time. And it looked so futuristic then. But now, looking at it, it is super tacky and overblown and horrible. And who wallpapers their fucking light switch outlet covers? (laughs) That's so crazy. That is crazy. It's totally crazy to me. But anyhow, 
that's why we fear what's going to happen. We've seen how brutal he can be. We've seen how meticulous and calculating he can be. We know what happens when there's a naked woman in the same room with Martin. Mm-hmm. She gets fucking cut and drained. That's what happens. But not with his new girlfriend, Abby. He wakes up just fine and she's crying on the couch drinking wine. Because that, to me, is just like what women in memes on the internet think that all women are supposed to be wine drinking and crying. It's so aggravating to me. <laughs> but at least Abby wears it well, right? She does. Yeah. This is a woman who has a lot of personal problems that she is using Martin as an outlet. But I don't think that what she realizes after the fact is she doesn't really feel better. But in a lot of ways, she might feel worse. But this seems to be a bit of a band-aid, a mental band-aid. Yeah. She's jealous of his youth, uh, jealous of his carefree attitudes, carefree lifestyle, the fact that he has no real worries. And even if he did, because he's some sort of outcast and he's living with his uncle, so there, there's got to be something like wrong, quote unquote, with his life, but it does not seem to phase him, obviously because he's a vampire. But she really like envies a lot of that and wants to capture and own a bit of that for herself and get the sweet virgin dick. I'm sure that's got to be a draw. But, like, she is unhappy in her marriage. She's unhappy with aging. She's just generally unhappy. She can't have children. She can't do or think or say any of the way that she wants to. So she wants to capture a little bit of this youthfulness that Martin gives her by spending some time with him. Stolen moments, even if it is because she's married. And I'm sure that's a lot of why she's crying. Because, yeah, she doesn't feel any better. It is a stopgap solution. And now she's cheating on her husband. Yeah. Which would be stressful for anybody. Unless you honestly don't care. And I think that's Abby's problem is that she cares too much. Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, this sexual escapade has afforded the townspeople a little bit of a reprieve. Because Martin doesn't seem the, the need to drink blood anymore. But the shakes are getting bad again. And it finally culminates into the fact that he can no longer contain himself and opts to kill two homeless guys. Which he does. Yum, yum, yum. Pipe some good, he does. This kind of results in a really crazy situation. And as meanwhile, as he's talking, he's talking on the radio. The radio host and uh, the populace are starting to know him as the Count. And as he's talking about the fact that he looks at all these women and none of them seem pretty enough anymore. I used to really like pretty girls and going after pretty girls, but they all seem kind of plain to him now. And Probably hey. because of all the sexy stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, once you have sex and, and, and you're with that person and, you know, sex for some people is very much about being like totally engrossed in one person, at least for a time. And then every everything else can seem kind of pale to, in comparison someone that's awake and alive and wants to be with him as opposed to unconscious and draped over his body lifelessly it's definitely not the same thing and he realizes that now even people that he would do it just because they deserved it because they yelled at him some old bitty fucking yells at him in the store telling him lazy and shit and he doesn't even kill her no no and he probably he thinks it's probably because he's doing the sexy stuff without the blood now with an awake person, mm-hmm. to put it in Martin's speak, because he's just yeah. a little bit childish still over all of this. But even for someone who's 84 years old, it's all new to him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he is pouring his heart out to this DJ, which is an interesting concept, because we get, instead of 
voiceover internal dialogue we get it played out like that so it's a really good tactic on Romero's part you know his girlfriend Abby initially she had talked to the, she had referenced the fact that he's very cat like and she had also referenced the fact that you know when she was younger she had an old alley cat that she used to talk to kind of like him and where he wouldn't really talk back I mean it's a cat so it doesn't talk yeah. uh, crazy lady but she just that, talk and talk and talk until she got it all out. Got it all out. I feel as though this radio DJ has become that for Martin. Mm-hmm. He, The radio DJ is a sullied alley cat with a bent ear and frayed whiskers that he just is talking endlessly to. And at the end of the phone conversations, he seems to feel better. A little bit. He hangs up on the radio station a lot, too, because they're always full of questions. Because unlike an alley cat, the DJ can talk back and says stuff like, hey, everyone, we're talking to the count here. And he's become this popular thing that people are tuning in to listen to, which is kind of sad in one way, because he is pouring his heart out to this radio DJ. But I'm sure that the DJ thinks it's a shtick to a certain extent. And it's getting listeners that it's all that matters at the end of the day. Because he is a radio personality after all. So he does have these outlets. He has time with Abby. He's Mm -hmm. not wanting blood so much. He has his radio DJ therapist, as it were. And what more could Martin want? Well, unfortunately, the bliss will end. Because not only did he kill those two guys, which resulted in a shootout between cops Mm -hmm. where a lot of people died. And it's a a little bit of good effects, too, with bullet wounds, up close bullet wounds and lots of blood. Oh, that leg shot. That leg shot is fucking great. It is really great, isn't it? Yeah, I like that, too. Yeah. Yeah, Savini, with his experience being a medic, he would definitely know what uh, bullet wounds would look like for sure. He does a really great job doing it. And, of course, all that bright, beautiful 70s blood that I'm so fucking obsessed with. Mm -hmm. But... As much of a, of a band-aid that Martin would have been for Abby's life, as much as maybe in their moments she was happy, the misery and uh, her own psyche that she can't get out from under takes its toll, and she commits suicide. This is unbeknownst to Martin at all. He's not even really aware the extent, probably, of her problems, uh, how unhappy she truly was. And this could all be considered hokey jokey porno bored housewife looking for fun while the hubby's away type stuff but what this shows us her suicide is that really martin was a momentary distraction a desperate attempt at connection and companionship to fill whatever void was in her psyche that was no longer being fulfilled in life she couldn't get out from under it And so she ends her life. And Martin's not really aware of any of this. No, and especially when it's positioned even to the audience as sort of uh, everyday complaints that a lot of bored housewives that have made dumb decisions to stick in the situation they don't like have made. Mm. And they don't end up killing themselves. But it seems that she had made her mind up quite some time ago. Mm -hmm. And the only reason she seemed to stick around this little extra bit was because she was interested in Martin for a little bit and to see if she couldn't steal a little bit of that youth and complacency and happiness, even a version of happiness anyway. Mm -hmm. But no, none of that rubs off. Mm -hmm. And it's probably just making things worse. Yeah, she admired how gentle he seemed. But she, uh, and perhaps like she just viewed the world as just overly harsh. And also she felt really raw about the fact that she got handed uh, a raw deal about the fact that she was unable to have children 
which seemed to eat away at her quite a bit. Maybe she felt it ate away at her husband. Maybe it's something she found about out about when they were already married or something like that. And, and for some reason, I mean, this is 1970s, so I could understand um, back in those days, maybe that would have been more of a sticking point to in somebody. In a way, depending on the person, I think she'd have won the lottery. And even if I was her <laughs> age in the 70s, I'd think I'd have won the lottery. True. I know, I know. And I know it's different for every everybody, for sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, that seems to be included in the script specifically to... It bothers her. Yeah. She seems the type that wants to be a mother. And mm-hmm. of course, that's what would bother. Like, I think I would have won the lottery because I'll never want to have children and never have wanted to have children. So that is winning the lottery. But for somebody who wants to have children, that's purgatory. Mm-hmm. She's being damned. Mm-hmm. Damned into this horrible life. Mm-hmm. Damned. And she's probably felt damned since the moment she heard that. So she's yeah. probably been crying on the couch over a bottle of wine every single fucking day since. And where's her husband? Yeah, out having affairs. Yeah, unfortunately. And kind of being controlling, even though he's controlling in absentia. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she has used what is almost his MO of killing herself with some pulls and a razor blade in the top. Mm-hmm. Which will be the smoking gun that he ironically had nothing to do with. For real, he for real had nothing. He was off killing other people. Yeah, he's going to wake up and there's Kuda making good on his warning at the beginning of the film that if you were to do, if you had were to kill anyone in this town, he would kill you and not wait for salvation of your soul. And he says, do you think that she committed suicide? Do you really think I believe this? Where everyone in the audience is like, yes, yes, this is so sad. And without a word stakes this motherfucker down to the spine. Yeah. Thump, 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 thump. Quite bloody. Quite bloody. It's like one of my one of my favorite staking scenes. It's quite good. Martin uh reacts non-verbally but uh is definitely in pain when it happens and thus ends the life of Martin. The count, people looking for him. Um I mean at this point Kuda doesn't really have much left. Because of the fact that he just killed Martin, Christine, uh, who, by the way, earlier in the film had run off with Tom Savini, no longer wanting to live in this crazy, oppressive cra- household. Yeah. I mean, she had to have an argument with her grandfather to get a phone extension installed in her room so she could make a phone call like a normal fucking human being. Because mm-hmm. it's not the way it was in the old country or whatever. Mm-hmm. So those sort of like clashing lifestyles mm-hmm. couldn't have gone on much longer. And she had promised that she would write Martin and get him out of there too, but whatever. And she never did. He really believed that she was going to anyway. Yeah. But now he can live there with his uncle forever underneath the flowers and grass seeds that he has just sewed over the freshly dug grave. Mm-hmm. While everyone on the radio chimes in and wonders where the count is, and that seems to be the story of the day. Whatever happened to the count? He was a big hit. Wouldn't it have been so sad, though, if Martin weren't a vampire? It would be extra sad. It would. I would feel sad for both Martin, a pathetic end to a pathetic life. Yeah. And I would feel sad for Kuda. Very for, sad for, for Kuda. killing his family member based off of nothing and also the sadness of the fact that kuda will never know that he was wrong would never believe that he was wrong would go to his grave believing that he did the right thing and that is tragedy 
I mean, Not for no him. No way to ever prove it to him. Even if the next week you could prove to him or attempt to prove to him mm-hmm. or come to him with real proof that there was no such thing as vampires and Martin was just crazy. Mm-hmm. He still, he went, He was so steeped, so ingrained in the idea that vampirism was passed down in their family. Mm-hmm. It didn't It didn't matter that Martin could demonstrate that the traditional effects of, of warding off vampires didn't work. It didn't matter that Martin could make a demonstration of how foolish Kuda is by dressing up in a Halloween costume with plastic teeth and Kuda believing that he had truly turned into the pure Nosferatu and him spitting out plastic teeth and basically mocking him. It's a costume. I love that scene so much. And it's filmed, it's another one of those scenes in this film that's filmed slightly different than a lot of the mm-hmm. other scenes. Very deliberately seems to be filmed like an old hammer picture. Yeah, I love up, that. Up to and including the camera angles of the automobile. Say, I'm like, I'm going old school. Automobile. The automobile. The automobile. And the mist and the moonlight. Yeah, all that fog. It's great. It's great. I feel, great. Yeah, I feel like that would have been the biggest budgetary concern. Get those fog machines in. More <laughs> fog machines. Quite, quite good. Well, quite Pennsylvania, maybe they just have fog like that naturally. Hmm, yeah, I maybe. Think so, yeah. If and 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 even if um, even if Martin is a vampire, truly, totally, absolutely, then it's just as sad because he was killed for a crime he didn't commit, although he was committing crimes. But he's also one of the least impactful vampires in all of vampire history. Mm-hmm. He's doing things in the snaky way and he may not be doing the Dexter thing of killing bad people or mm-hmm. whatever, but he's still like not making a big impact on the world. He's not killing indiscriminately entirely. He's not overfeeding. He's only feeding when he needs to. And he's semi reluctant about it. And he cares about the people that he's feeding off of too. So, mm-hmm. um, it is sad in that way that, well, if there was a vampire that's going to live, like, let this guy live because he's the one that's rocking the boat the least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really, really enjoy this film. And it is, like we said, one of the more undersung Romero movies, but I'm really glad that it's George Romero's favorite movie out mm-hmm. of those movies. Well, it goes to show you a lot of times when filmmakers talk about movies that they've done. I mean, Carpenter loves the fog. How many people talk about the fucking fog over... We just talked about the fog, but not the movie The Fog. We talked about the fog. (laughs) But yeah, it's weird. And to the point of loving it so much to remake it and have it still not received properly at all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Still love it. Like like an ugly child. Yeah, but you know, it it would be frustrating that, uh, that he's like, I really love this one thing that I did. And everybody just wants to talk about Night of the Living Dead or Winfrey Carpenter. Everyone wants to just talk about... Halloween and everyone wants to talk about the thing. Yes, I like those movies. I, I made them. They're near and dear to my heart. But I made other stuff, too, that I'm very proud of. And it can sometimes be a loaded question for these filmmakers after all this time about what do you want to hear about? Mm-hmm. And, and But then also, when I can speak as a horror fan who, who meet these people at conventions, etc. And you always want to think to yourself, I want to ask them about something that they don't get asked about all the time because you want to leave an an impression. But I don't know what to say because I'm going to say the same thing everyone else says. Tony Todd, you scared me. <laughs> Lin- Linda Blair, I love The ex- Exorcist. Yeah. Robert England, I love Freddy Krueger. 
That's why I wanted to bring my Puss in Boots to see Guillermo del Toro, because I'm sure not a lot of people have come up to him and been like, I love almost all of your movies, except this one I love the most. Mm-hmm. Even though you were only a producer on it. Will you sign it, please? Yeah. What was it like? <laughs> what was it like? What was it like working yeah. with the Puss? Do you have the boots at home? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <sighs> what do we got next for him? Coming up next, we have some requests. Mm-hmm. We're going to hit Lights Out. That's right. We're going to do the 2016 film uh, that came out last summer, Lights Out. Yeah, sort of polarizing. A lot of people don't like it. A lot of people love it. A lot of people are just like, meh, it's a film. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited to see it because I've really read nothing about it. I've seen some of the little back and forth and quips and blurbs, but I haven't like read reviews on this. So I don't know what I'm in for. I really don't. I've seen the... Uh, trailer. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then after that, we got... Conjuring 2. Conjuring 2, another request, and another super modern horror film that we will be uh, tackling. By the way, speaking of um, uh, polarizing opinions, uh, if you guys had a chance to check out spiderpictures.net, I did a review for the uh, the Rings film uh, that's been getting a lot of traction on the site. If you guys want a differentiating opinion of what a lot of people have been saying about that flick, uh, you can go check it out there. Yeah, it's a very interesting take on it because if you have read a lot of the reviews like I have, uh, people seem to be of one mind with this fucking movie. And it was very, very nice. One of our, um, one of my Twitter pals and like a Rue Morgue fan from way back when, um, Robert Black, had mentioned right off that it is the only positive review out there. <laughs> the only one. <laughs> I'm sure it's not the only one, but yeah, it's not going to be like everything you've read. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think that it's a, it's a very interesting film. It's exactly the type of Ring movie that I've wanted to see for years and years and years. And I can genuinely say that there has been Ring sequels that have been made, that have come out, that have been received better, that I wish were this movie. That this was what I was looking for that whole time. It's fascinating because there are people that have the exact opposite point of view. And I enjoyed your right up very much immensely not because i have a vested interest in the rings franchise Mm -hmm. you know i enjoy those films i'm probably waiting for it to be on netflix or something or catching on if i had like a tv subscription of cable i suppose you call Mm -hmm. it i don't know what even call it because i haven't had one in so long um then i'd catch it there or like walk through my dad's living room and it would be on type thing that's when i'm waiting to view it myself Mm -hmm. but i scrambled to read the spotterpictures.net <laughs> review because it's a nice long beefy one too. That's my other favorite thing about Wes's writing is that it's not um two paragraphs. It's not a sound bite. No, no. And honestly, it's funny because I thought that that was a detriment all these years. I I I I just I have a hard time being concise. Long I- reads, man. There's a something to be said for long reads. Not only do I enjoy like book length long form journalism but yeah long reads are something that you you don't want to the worst thing ever is going to some especially a horror website like the um former erstwhile fangoria Mm -hmm. and or room org or even dread central and you're like oh cool a headline of something i'm interested i'm gonna click the fuck out of that and you go and it's like a paragraph and you're like fuck you Hmm. i wasted my whole like two kilo calories of fucking energy putting my finger down on that link mm-hmm. and this is what i get yeah i remember getting disappointed by a certain issue of 
a certain horror. Oh, fuck it, it was Rue Morgue. Mm-hmm. And there was there was a, a video game review that I was very interested to read. And it was on the cover. It was like it wasn't the, oh, the it oh, was it was so it, it wasn't the cover image. No, but a but, blur. But, but it was but it was on the cover. Cover mentioned like, you want at least a quarter page, half page. And it was like it was nothing. It, I was like flipping through the book. I'm like, where is this? And I finally get you know they review games in the back. It's fucking a paragraph, two paragraphs. And I was like, what the fuck? I was like, I'm sorry. This is not. You don't write this and then put that on the fucking cover because. No. Because fucking like, those magazines like nine dollars to buy it in the store like and you're telling me that i bought this for this one article and this is what i get Ooh, ooh, yeah. it made me mad it's not fair it's not no fair. it's worse that's worse than having to click on a link and getting a paragraph you bought a whole magazine yeah. you killed a half a tree i did i did and, and and i said like fine the review itself fine but don't put that on the cover but anyway yeah so for for us and i'm thinking about um this did very well. I mean, it, like, uh, granted, the director retweeted it a bunch of times. He was probably <laughs> quite happy. Probably, that. yeah. But at the, so, I mean, it's gotten a lot of traffic. But I'm thinking, you know, maybe we'll, maybe there'll be more. We'll return not fully to written reviews, but I will start to reincorporate written film reviews back into the website. I'm thinking, especially when you have something to say. Because little known fact that if I were to hit record from the time Wes started talking about horror films. To the time that he stopped talking about horror films on a Saturday, you, dear listeners, would get something like seven hours of fucking was. <laughs> because, you know, when something moved him, and this is not every time, there's lots of times we hang out like normal fucking people. But when there's something on his mind, he could write the way that what Splatter Pitches was born from. So I'm really, I'm really excited to hear that. Um, I also hope that all your time is taken up with writing long form for splatter pictures here and there about things that move you or, or really grind your gears, yeah. as an old journalism prof of mine used to say. Uh, I hope somehow we can do a little more fiction, because if you haven't listened to our episode before this, our Kronos episode, 93, uh, we did a little excerpt of Pray Light Eve and God damn it, Wes, I just got to publicly say, because I've said a couple of times today how great I thought that was and how your voice just works so well for fiction and the audio production, not to mention the fucking audio production. Jesus, Mm. it was all just awesome. So I hope maybe in the future we can probably do a whole story or something or something longer because one of my dearest friends and listeners, my dearest friend, period, Chris, from Bind Torture Cast, had said the worst thing about... Listening to us read that excerpt of Jack in the Box was that it ended. <laughs> That's very kind, and thank you very much. Um, uh, you know what? I think that uh, actors are only good as the scripts that they're handed, and I think that the writing was absolutely impeccable. And by the way, I have a, a compliment that I was going to give you earlier, but but um, I definitely got a, a confirmation that you, someone who heard our story, genuinely became scared uncomfortable about the whole idea of the story oh good so your words did precisely what they were going to do discomfort is what we aim for (laughs) i am so pleased that made my day okay here we are just a big fucking dead air circle jerk (laughs) thanks guys absolutely and you know what i'd be totally fucking down for uh doing uh some more readings of of uh some of your short stories i'd be definitely down to do that and fuck it we want to do a whole one. I'll do a whole one. Cool. If you guys listening don't like it, let us know, and we won't 
we won't fucking bore you with it. We'll bore someone else. Yeah. But or we like, could also like yeah. we could record it and make it not part of the episode. We could put it in. It, we can just put it up. Yeah. Do as it a, as a one off kind of like yeah. separate deal. Yeah. But, see if people like it. Yeah. If um, you have an opinion either way, let us know. Uh, yeah. And you can get those opinions to us at Twitter. We're at Wes Dead Air Nipe or at Typical Lydia. Or you can check us out on spotterpictures.net. You can leave a comment under any of the videos that you see or in the About Us section. Or you can go to our Facebook page at spotterpictures slash Podcast. Yeah. You can leave comments on SoundCloud too. Or you can find us both on Instagram and, you know, gold stars to people that can figure out our fucking names on those services. <laughs> Mine is uh, Dead Air 83 I think. Mine's still typical, Lydia. <laughs> uh, I'm Wes Knight. And I am typical, Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air. <laughs>